This is a special interview produced for download by Energy News. I'm Paul Hunt. Today, we revisit a company I've been following closely as a journalist at Energy News. It's called Empire Energy. Empire is listed on the ASX as EEG. When I started reporting at Energy News, Empire had a share price of about 13 cents. Today, it boasts a broader range of shareholders and trades somewhere between 33 cents and even as high as 50 cents. Many believe this is just the start for Empire. In this feature, I'm joined by Empire Energy Managing Director Alex Underwood. Alex Underwood, welcome to the program. Hi, Paul. Great to see you. Alex, your project in the Northern Territory now has the support of the federal government, uh, local landowners, uh, First Nations uh, native title holders and the Northern Territory government. Uh, you're very well supported by investors too. Can you start with a quick rundown of the company's activities to date? Yeah, thanks, Paul. So we were actually one of the first companies to identify the potential of the Beedaloo and MacArthur Basins way back in 2011. Uh, one of our current directors, John Warburton, is a highly successful oil and gas explorationist and he was tasked by our former CEO with identifying shale basins in Australia and, and he locked on to the Beedaloo and MacArthur. Um, you know, there was a quite a long intervening period. There was a moratorium, um, new regulations came into place. But under my leadership, we've really been focused on, on getting, getting things going and looking to get into production as quickly as possible. So over the last couple of years, we carried out our first seismic program in 187, which demonstrated that the key shales of the Beedaloo extend into our tenement. We drilled our first exploration well, Carpenteria 1, last year, which identified a very substantial column of liquids-rich gas. And we carried out a fracture stimulation and flow test in recent months, which has been really successful. And what we've also been working on in the, in the background is further government approvals to move into the next phase of appraisal. And we'll be uh, drilling our first horizontal appraisal well quite soon. So it's been a busy period for us, but we're only just getting started. Those of us who are regular listeners will already be aware of Empire's uh, big acreage footprint, if you like. Uh, can you give us a brief rundown of, of what your tenement acreage is? Certainly. So the original asset package we picked up is on the eastern side of the Beedaloo and extends right up through East Arnhem Land in what's called the MacArthur Basin Central Trough. That's an area of around 14 and a half million acres and uh, with a substantial prospective resource of uh, somewhere in the order of 13 or 14 trillion cubic feet of gas. Uh, but more recently, uh, we decided that um, you know, we could see the potential of the Beedaloo and we've, we've doubled down by making a recent acquisition of properties previously owned by Pangaea Resources and their joint venture partner, Energy and Minerals Group, both of whom have now become substantial shareholders of our company. And that's increased our acreage position to 29 million acres with around 42 trillion cubic feet of prospective gas resources and another 700 million barrels of prospective liquids resources. So it's a, it's a truly global scale resource that we've, we've got under lease. You've just released your financial report. Uh, you've got 42 million uh, cash in the bank. Uh, how much did the exploration work over the past year cost you? Uh, yeah, so our first World Carpenteria One cost around $11 million cash. Uh, and then the uh, fracture stimulation and flow testing program 
was around $5 million. G given that we're in these early stages, a, a lot of that investment involves some really world-leading technical an analysis. So we're, we're collecting a lot of data. We're doing a lot of formation evaluation work to ensure that we make really good technical decisions going forward. Um, since the half, we have completed the acquisition of the Pangaea properties, and that involves some cash consideration, uh, stamp duty bill, and some costs associated with the deal. Um, and that, that was funded uh, through a highly successful capital raising Q2. Uh, and we've been making pre-investments in some of the long lead items for our upcoming drilling program and indeed the civil construction work. So we've probably got around 28 million bucks cash at the moment, which leaves us really well funded for that horizontal appraisal program. Uh, there's a lot of companies, as I'm sure you're aware, which uh, could be described as uh, pumping the tyres. Uh, Empire isn't one of those. Uh, you walk the, the talk, if you like. Uh, you're out there exploring and drilling. Uh, Carpentaria One, I want to focus on that well uh, specifically for a moment. It provided pretty astonishing results. Um, it wasn't just gas, it was liquids. What did that well tell you? So... Um you know, being our first exploration well, one of the key goals of that program was to, you know, penetrate through the shales and, and collect data. And it, it was it was a pretty interesting well. I mean, there, there's been a, a, a theory amongst the industry for some time that around the basin's flanks, there would be more liquids-prone gas. And indeed, we've proven that. And I note that Origin Energy is actually drilling a well, Velkeri 76, right now to test the same uh, basin flanks in their tenements. Um, we actually, despite being on the basin flanks, we identified the thickest sequence of the key shale targets identified to date. And then um, we, we carried out a, a whole bunch of uh, logging analysis, collected large diameter sidewall cores, and they were analysed in the lab in Houston. And that helped us to move into the next stage, which was a four-stage vertical fracture stimulation targeting those four key zones. The key goal of that program was not just to maximise flow rates, it was actually to identify, first of all, how uh, each of the zones reacts to fracture stimulation treatment. And we had slightly different designs in each zone, uh, but also to identify which of the zones was giving us the best contributions and also what the gas versus liquids composition was in those zones. What, what we've identified is that, first of all, we had gas flow from all four zones, which is great, um, but a particularly strong contribution from the Velkeri B shale, uh, around 35 to 40% of total uh, production, and also a surprisingly strong contribution from the C shale, which is quite a lot shallower, but um, contains the most liquids rich um, of the four zones. So, yeah, pretty encouraging results, and we're, we're really looking forward now to moving into that next stage, building on the knowledge base that we've acquired so far. Alex, you mentioned uh, Empire Energy isn't the only active player in the Northern Territory, uh, though perhaps you hold uh, the most envious acreage position. Santos is out there. You mentioned Origin Energy too. Um, these two companies are much bigger than Empire. What have you learnt from, from their two projects, um, their separate projects, and, and is there any opportunity to work together? Absolutely. So, um, you know, one of the key elements of shale uh, and the hydrocarbons that it contains is that 
these zones extend right across the basin. There's incredible continuity of these shales right across the basin. And so it's it's great to have bigger companies that are answering some of these key commercial questions and technical questions. You know, we're not doing all the heavy lifting on our own, but we are definitely playing our part. Um, they both have very active programs ongoing right now. Um, there's a really critical result that Origin's just achieved, which has been announced by Origin and their joint venture partner, Falcon Oil and Gas. And that was a re-entry into an existing well called Amunji Northwest 1H, the, the first horizontal ever drilled in the basin back in 2016. And what they've demonstrated is that while it was a one kilometre horizontal well with 11 fracture stimulation stages, actually 85 to 95% of the total production came from only the first four stages. And as Falcon has detailed in a recent announcement, if you uh, then come up with a normalised flow rate across a one kilometre section, you're getting over 5 million cubic feet a day. And I note further that in development scenarios, it's likely that we'll be drilling three kilometre laterals. So this is an extremely encouraging result for the basin. And I'm sure Falcon shareholders are pretty happy with it because the share price soared on the back of it and our share price has reacted and, and that of others. Um, the, the, the next key pieces of work that will be carried out are um, it, it, there's some drilling going on from Santos at the moment. They're drilling the second of two horizontal wells targeting the B shale and the lower B shale in the block next door to ours. Uh, and we understand that there'll be results expected around Christmas time. So, you know, the, these horizontal wells are really the, the critical basin opening wells for shale developments. And this has been proven in the US experience. You know, we all know that there's a huge resource down there under our feet, but if you can demonstrate commercial or close to commercial flow rates, it really gives you that runway for large-scale development in the future. Those are encouraging results from everybody in the basin so far. Um, how quickly is the top end, the Northern Territory, uh, and the Beedaloo becoming Australia's next big energy province? Am I right in saying that? Well, I, I believe it is, but um, you know, my my view might be a little bit biased in this regard. I think, you know, the first thing to say is that the Beedaloo is the largest undeveloped gas resource in Australia. Um, and, you know, while we are going through an energy transition, there are there are major forecast shortfalls in gas production in this country. Um, you know, it's not just us saying that, it's the Australian energy market operator. Um, you know, despite the transition, gas is becoming a critical um, feedstock for manufacturing, but also providing that dispatchable power particularly as coal-fired power stations are being retired around the world. You know, we've just seen in, in recent months that gas prices all around the world are taking off. Um, and so we need more supplies of gas, not only for our own country, but also the broader region. And the Beedaloo's got some critical strategic advantages in that regard. We're just about the closest large-scale source of new gas supply to Asia that there is anywhere. Um, this basin contains very low CO2 in place. So as we, as an industry, look at carbon offset measures, then the, the offset challenge for this basin will be relatively lower than others. But also Australia is, is recognised as a, a safe place for, country, uh, for people to invest. So it's got a lot of big strategic advantages. And I think this is why 
the NT government and the, the federal government are, are backing the base and they can see its potential. Gas to market, liquids to market, uh, it's it's all very well producing. Um, you do need a road to get it to the market though. What's yours? Yeah, so being a smaller company, you know, there's some advantages to being small. You can be pretty nimble. Um, and also, you know, materiality uh, is is more relevant for us with getting smaller volumes of gas into production. So we're looking at a staged commercialisation approach. Stage one, we'll be looking to utilise existing pipeline infrastructure to service local markets. And, um, you know, there'll be some more uh, news to share with your listeners in the months ahead around how we look to affect that. And that'll allow us to get into production and cash flow and provide more sustainability of our balance sheet as we look to then grow. Um, there, there are further plans afoot for more large-scale production later this decade to both alleviate forecast shortfalls on Australia's east coast, provide backfill for existing LNG plants out of Gladstone, um, but also to send gas north. And, you know, the NT government have been quite wise in the way that they're looking to uh, see this industry roll out. As an example of their five-point plan for the development of this industry, uh, they're looking to support downstream gas manufacturing projects. And there's quite simple reason for that. You, you create a lot more jobs with that downstream and you can add a lot of value to those molecules. So, you know, we see multiple paths to market, but initially focused on local markets and then sending gas east and north from the basin. My guest is Alex Underwood, Managing Director of Empire Energy, listed in the ASX as EEG. Uh, Alex, let's focus on EP187 and your next well. What's the purpose of that well? And, uh, you know, if your dreams come true, what do you expect? So um, we've, we've made a pretty major discovery with the Carpentaria One well, but this is only a small subset of the prospective area within EP187. We've got several trillion cubic feet of prospective resource in this area. We've converted a small amount of that prospective resource to contingent or discovered resource. What we're looking to do next is to target an area in the northern part of the block, uh, about 11 kilometres north of Carpentaria One. The shales get about 200 to 250 metres deeper at that point, so it'll be interesting to see uh, what the impacts are, will be of drilling deeper. But also it allows us to de-risk that broader area and convert more prospective resource to contingent. So that's step one. But the other critical step for this next well is really to carry out a horizontal fracture stimulation. Um, and you know, that could be over say a thousand meters of the horizontal section. And then look at what sort of flow rates we achieve from that, because that, that will really allow us to extrapolate out into further future development scenarios, um, what production may look like in the future and then how to start running some economics with a view to then how we look to fund further programs and that you know it could could potentially be through farming out to another company um which uh you know they they would have confidence around making further investments if we can demonstrate close to commercial flow rates 
Uh, Alex, um, hydraulic fracturing, uh, the rocks, you've, you've talked about uh, how deep this well is actually going to get. Just for the record, this is well below the water table. Um, can, can, you talk to, can you talk to hydraulic fracking in the Northern Territory at the moment? Absolutely. So um, hydraulic fracturing has actually been carried out since the 1940s. There have been a couple of million wells hydraulically fractured. A lot of those wells have been in the US, but, but all around the world and including Australia. I think from memory, the first well was hydraulically fractured in the Cooper Basin back in the 70s. So this is a very well established technology. Um, however, it, it, it is a controversial technology for those people who don't understand it. Um, you know, I think the, the very, the, the word itself is quite a controversial sounding word. Um, and, you know, the, the key concern that communities have around hydraulic fracturing is, as you said, it, it's, it's the risk of, um, you know, what, what could happen to local water tables. We've done a lot of work to understand where the aquifers sit within EP187. And they are typically around 100 to 150 metres below the surface. Under the new regulatory regime we have in the Northern Territory, these concerns that the community have were listened to by the independent inquiry and regulations have been put in place that are some of the tightest and strictest in the world to ensure that local environments, particularly aquifers, are protected during these activities. As an example of some of the protective measures that are in place, before we uh, carry out fracking, um, we have to drill water monitoring bores on each well pad. One of them is the, the aquifer tends to flow in one direction. So you have an upstream and a downstream water bore, and we take months of water samples from those bores to establish what the baseline water quality is. And then we have to collect more water samples after the fracture stimulation essentially to ensure that there is no change to that uh, water quality. But also as we drill through these shales, there's a common misunderstanding that when you drill a well, it's just a hole in the ground that then these hydrocarbons flow through. In fact, what happens is you've got multiple barriers of steel casing and cement between that aquifer and the flow of hydrocarbons within the wellbore to ensure that there can never be communication between those two zones. So when well regulated, this industry is absolutely safe in respect of aquifers. And we take that responsibility very, very seriously. We fully understand that there are multiple users of these water sources um, and we respect that. Uh, and we work very hard in, in local communities to explain what the risks are, but also what we do to mitigate those risks. And just earlier this week, we had an on-country meeting with traditional owners in Borroloola, which was an outstanding success. That's the seventh on-country meeting we've held in Borroloola over the years. And we have developed really strong relationships with traditional owners. And I spoke to some of the key senior traditional owners after the meeting, and they, they explained how helpful it was for us to explain um, what these measures are we take to protect uh, their local environment and for that matter, cultural heritage.
Alex, as you mentioned, you do have a really strong relationship with the uh, traditional owners on uh, EP 187. What What is the Indigenous community getting out of this? It's really important to, to first point out that we are operating on their land. Um, you know, traditional owners across this country have fought very hard for their land rights over decades, and we see it really as a partnership. Um, under the Aboriginal Land Rights Act, we are not allowed to carry out any activities without the full informed and prior consent of traditional owners. And that is administered through the Northern Land Council. And, and great lengths are gone to to ensure that, you know, we have those consultations, that people understand what we're proposing, uh, that the risks are laid out, that the mitigants are laid out, but also the benefits. Um, you know, some of the benefits that accrue to traditional owners under the agreement we have with them, uh, first of all, are expiration payments. So they get a percentage of money we spend during the expiration phase, um, but also economic benefits. Um, and, and, you know, that, that can include things like uh, hiring traditional owners as cultural heritage monitors. And, you know, there's no one who understands the cultural history of these areas better than the traditional owners themselves. And so they are the most um, skilled and uh, the people with the knowledge for that work. Right now, in terms of uh, job creation, um, these are fairly bespoke work programs that start and stop. Um, but, you know, as we have communicated to traditional owners, we, we believe it's really critical that when you move into that production phase and you have that ongoing full-time work over the year, um, it, it's it's good business sense for us to have local people doing that work. You know, we don't want constant fly in, fly out type operations. Um, and so it's good business sense for us, but also it helps uh, some of these remote communities to continue to develop uh, their local economies. My guest is Alex Underwood, uh, Managing Director of Empire Energy, listed on the ASX as EEG. Alex, uh, we've talked about uh, the support that you have uh, from local uh, communities. Um, I, I note that uh, you also have uh, substantial support from the federal government. Um, Australia currently doesn't have uh, energy security uh, as as it needs. Is your permit and, and broadly the, the Northern Territory potentially the answer to this? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, we are facing major forecast shortfalls of gas, particularly on Australia's east coast. And, you know, as that Australian energy market operator data shows, that some of the measures that are looking to add to supply on Australia's east coast will help with that. Uh, Santos's Narrabri project is going to be a critical contributor to supply going forward. And there are also potential LNG uh, import terminals being proposed. But, but none of these uh, proposals that are under development uh, create the, the panacea to really fill that gap. We need another major uh, basin to come online to support those forecast shortfalls. And the Beedaloo is, is one of the critical basins that can do that. So, you know, the NT government recognises that. We've got bilateral support in the in the NT for our industry, obviously under strict regulation. Um, and the federal government has the foresight to recognise that we need to be doing things now to add to supply years out into the future. So 
federal government has the gas-fired recovery strategy. As part of that, they've announced the Beedaloo strategic plan, which strategic basin plan, sorry, which involves uh, infrastructure build out, but also a grants program where um, applicants can offset 25% of uh, accelerated activity. We are one of a number of companies that have applied for those grants and our grants have been approved and we've entered into those grant agreements, which will facilitate offsets against the drilling of up to three horizontal wells in 187. And, you know, based on public announcements we've seen, we understand that other applications consistent with that grant program are, are under development. So, um, you know, I think at both the NT and Australian government level, there's some, some real nation building activity happening here to see uh, energy security for our country into the decades ahead. About a year or so ago, uh, I was a keen young journo and commodity analyst and posed you the question of whether a takeover could be on the cards. You said then, no way, uh, you're in it for the long run. Uh, to bring these assets into production, you did mention that uh, you would need a joint venture partner potentially. Um, what's that looking like? We certainly don't have anything concrete to report today, but what I would say is that there is increasing interest in this basin from major companies, both here in Australia and around the world, particularly the US. I mean, the US shale companies, they've seen it all before. It transformed their uh, energy sector and you know their overall economy. Um, this basin does have striking similarities to some of the most prolific plays in the US, and there are a lot of players watching. Um, we, you know, we've been having a number of those discussions. I think also, with the surging gas prices we're seeing around the world um, and, you know, I think it was a Goldman Sachs analyst who said the era of cheap gas is over. Well, um, surging gas prices have a couple of critical impacts. First of all, it, it provides a clear third-party demonstration that we need to identify new sources of supply, but also it um, tends to open up the expiration and development budgets of major companies that tend not to invest so much uh, in, in more difficult conditions. So, um, you know, I think some of the key questions that are going to be answered uh, in the coming months with horizontal appraisal drilling could potentially be the real trigger point to see substantial third party capital can come into the basin. Alex, the rig market uh, has been a major headache for the mining sector. Uh, we're seeing a, a very severe tightening of, of, of rigs um, all across Australia for mining. Um, what's that like for oil and gas at the moment? Is the rig, is the rig market as tight as it is in, in mining? Uh, no, not necessarily. There's, there's pretty good rig availability. I mean, we, we do have a pretty small land-based rig sector here in this country, um, but, you know, when we've put out tenders for drilling rigs, we've actually found that we tend to get pretty good responses. Um, so, you know, certainly our needs are being fulfilled right now by the rig market. Um, but, you know, if this basin moves into commercial development as we expect it will, there's gonna be a need to be a lot more services come into this country. Um, you know, in, in the US at any given time, there are typically a few hundred well, wells being drilled at a time um, and you know I foresee that again with that appraisal success 
we'll see a continuation of a trend that's already occurring, which is that the major services providers will continue bringing more rigs, more frac spreads, uh, and more support services into the country. You've mentioned uh, gas prices at the moment. Let's let's take a look at uh, commodity prices in our region. Oil prices have now uh, rebounded uh, since the crash in 2020. In fact, they're trading higher uh, than pre-COVID. There's a lot of talk about $100 oil prices. Uh, we're recording this in mid-September and Brent was at about $75 this morning. What's your view on, on oil prices? Uh, look, if I knew where the oil price was going, I'd probably be sitting on a beach right now uh, <laughs> trading oil futures and sipping on a pina colada. Um, so, uh, you know, I guess everyone's got their view. Um I, I, what I would say about oil prices and gas prices for that matter is that there's been a big shift in the way that the US independents and for that matter, some of the larger companies are thinking about managing their balance sheets. During the shale boom in the US, um, a lot of, well, pretty much all the companies were drilling like crazy to increase production levels. And part of that's down to the land tenure um, regime they have in the US where you have to drill and get into production to hold on to acreage. Um, and it created a massive oversupply of oil and gas in the US. And this is going back several years, back to 2014, 15. Um, a lot of that sort of rampant drilling activity to increase production has really come to an end. There's been a, a massive wave of consolidation where lots of smaller independents have merged or been acquired by bigger companies. And, and the absolute focus of those companies in the US now is on returning capital to shareholders. And, and what that means is a lot more capital discipline in the market and, it, and it's tightening up uh, it, it's tightening up the oil and gas markets in the US. It, there's also a big trend happening amongst the super majors, particularly the Europeans, where they are under significant ESG pressure from their shareholders. And as a result, they're showing a lot of capital discipline in terms of new supply. So, you know, there's a perfect storm emerging right here in markets where you've got increasing demand and, and demand that is going to stay strong for decades, irrespective of the ESG wave. You know, there are billions of people who are still yet to come out of poverty and, and join the middle classes of the world, and they're going to need a lot of energy. Um, so you've got in, you know, strong and increasing demand, and yet on the supply side, we simply aren't seeing the amount of capital expenditure that we need to maintain existing supply levels, let alone grow them with, with forecast demand growth. So there's only way, one way prices can go in that environment, and that is up, and we're seeing it play out right now. What about gas in our region? I mean, we're, we're in the Asia region. Our, our, our biggest uh, uh, market is, is often Japan for exports of gas. What's happening with gas prices? Well, they've gone through the roof. I mean, in, in the depths of the COVID shutdowns, there was an extraordinary situation emerging in LNG markets where um, you know, a lot of LNG vessels couldn't even get to the uh, receiving ports and uh, the regasification terminals. And so prices crashed to a previously unforeseeable low of $2 per MMBTU, that's US dollars. 
Now we're seeing the complete opposite. We've, we've got um, economies reopening. We've got uh, very low gas storage levels in Asia and Europe. Um, and as I mentioned, there isn't that capital expenditure coming into the market. And gas prices are reaching extraordinary highs. I just saw this morning that the JKM LNG price is at the extraordinary level of around 25 US dollars. So it's gone up 12x in a year. Um, and we're not even in the peak heating season yet. Now, is $25 an MMBTU sustainable in the long term? We'll, we'll know. Um, the market will react with more supply over time. But I do foresee tightness in gas markets going forward as demand increases. And a lot of a lot of highly respected sources are showing that LNG demand is going to keep increasing for decades. And it's because gas is becoming the world's baseload source of power. Uh, Coal-fired power stations are being shut down. Emissions targets are growing around the world. And, um, you know, gas has half the full life cycle emissions of coal. And so it's a critical transition fuel as the world moves towards greater sources of renewables. And, you know, we're, we're talking about Asia, but I think what's happening in Europe right now is a, is a critical indicator of this. Um, Europe has gone really hard into renewables. Um, they had a very cold end to their last winter, which depleted gas uh, storage levels. They haven't replenished those storage levels over summer. Um, the sources of wind power are way off at the moment. There just isn't a lot of wind in Europe right now. Um, there are problems with getting gas from Russia, which they are utterly dependent on, and we're seeing prices spike. And what it, what it's causing is, um, you know, this when you have high gas prices and high electricity prices, every consumer feels that. Um, it, it's you're seeing household power prices take off in Europe. UK's got the highest prices they've ever seen. And there's actually civil unrest starting already. So, you know, we the, the critical thing we need to do is we've got to bring more supply in to, to support these markets and, and bring prices down to more reasonable levels. So we're going to continue seeing these massive price spikes going forward. Well, with strong commodity prices, what does that mean for your project in the future? Well, you know, we think we're perfectly placed. I mean, the Northern Territory... It's right on Asia's doorstep. We've got existing LNG export infrastructure right there in Darwin. Uh, as I mentioned, it's a low CO2 source of gas. Australia's a great place to invest. Um, you know, we've got strong regulation. Um, you know, we, we see a very bright future for this basin in the, in the years and decades ahead. The fundamentals are certainly there. Alexander Wood, thank you for your time. Thanks very much, Paul. Great to talk. Alex Underwood is the Managing Director of Empire Energy. It trades under the ticker EEG. You can find out more about Empire Energy and its journey to become a major gas producer at empireenergygroup.net or by subscribing to Energy News at energynewsbulletin.net. This podcast was produced by Aspermont Media. 